0: With that introduction, kind of looking over my shoulder, just talking about somebody else. <laughs> we have enjoyed getting to know you, uh, meeting you over the last week and the search team over the last uh, several months and I just want to say thank you for your hospitality to us. Um, thank you to the search uh, team and the elders for their kindness to us f- they 've been so thorough they 've been so kind. Uh, and generous with us, and so just know um, they have served you well, I think. They've, they've been really good. Um, I look forward to, to getting to know you more uh, in the future. We're, this morning, going to be in Luke chapter 9. If you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 9. And we're looking at verses 18 to, to 27, going along with uh, what Peter has arranged uh, for you guys, over the next few weeks, leading up to the crucifixion of our Lord and celebrating His resurrection, and so I pray that I will serve you well this morning with His Word. Before we do, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we pray that this would be a time where you would work on our hearts by the power of your Word, working through your Spirit, We pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified in our minds and in our hearts. Be glorified in our midst, we pray, Lord, by your word, as your gospel is proclaimed. Please bless your people this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the last couple of days, uh, maybe you've seen the ACC tournament going on. Uh, I know not all of you are basketball fans, so I recognize the danger in starting off with a basketball illustration, but I'll go for it anyway. But over the, um, the last few days, the commercials that have been on, one in particular is an old commercial from like the 90s. It is, uh, you could summarize it with saying, I want to be like Mike. You recognize that? In that Gatorade commercial. I want to, I dream that I move, I dream, I groove like Mike. And I remember being out in the backyard sticking out my tongue like Michael Jordan, thinking maybe I would be able to jump like Mike, dunk like Mike. Um, but it, you'll notice in the commercials, all the highlights are of game winning, championship winning shots. You know, it's all the really amazing things that Michael Jordan has done, of course, you wouldn't expect there to be any negative parts of his life in that commercial. His struggle with gambling or the tragic loss of his father. Um, You don't see any of the the negative things. And so it, it turns out we don't really want to be like Mike in everything, just in those positive elements, not in all of the negative ways. And sometimes I'm afraid that we do something similar with Christ. We want to be like Christ, but often we only focus on the positive elements of what that means to be a disciple of Jesus. We want to shy away from the difficult things, so we want to be pure like Christ. We want to be holy and righteous and gentle and kind. We long for those things. But what we find in Jesus' teaching on discipleship is that often he focuses on elements that we would be happy to avoid, or ignore. Of course, all those positive elements are there in discipleship. But, we often neglect Jesus' focus on self-denial, on cross-bearing, as elements of what it means to be His disciples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this quote, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. And that's what we see here in this text. This is Jesus' call to discipleship. In this passage, Jesus locates his identity as the Christ in his suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection, and he insists that anyone who wants to come after him must pattern their lives after his. So what that person will find in the end, though, is that anything that they may have lost in this life is nothing to what they have gained in Christ. So the big idea for the sermon this morning is this. The identity of Jesus as the suffering, rejected, dying, and rising Christ is the template for our discipleship in Christ. So Jesus, particularly in his suffering, death, and resurrection, is the template for our discipleship. As Paul says in 2 Timothy if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's look at our passage in Luke, Luke nine eighteen 18-27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father? And of the holy angels. But I tell you truly. There are some standing here who will not taste death. Until they see the kingdom of God. Now, as I've, I've enjoyed being able to listen to uh, sermons uh, from Christ Church over the last few months. So I've been able to listen to Peter. And I've been encouraged by his messages. And as he said last week. Luke arranges his material geographically. So he begins in the first three chapters with the advent of Jesus. And then in chapter 4, after the temptation of Jesus, there's this shift in geography to Galilee as Jesus begins his ministry of teaching and of miracles, and as he calls his disciples, and his ministry continues. As his ministry continues, we begin to learn about who Jesus is. This is a central aim for Luke that we might ask the question who is Jesus? He has power over demons. He has power over diseases, and even he has power over death. But he claims more than just being a miracle worker, because this is the Son of Man who can even forgive sins. So Jesus does some amazing things. He says some amazing things, and yet there's a lot of confusion about his identity. Who is Jesus? In chapter 7, even John the Baptist sends a couple of disciples to ask Are you the one that is to come, or should we be looking for someone else? And at the beginning of chapter 9, Luke reports that Herod the Tetrarch was perplexed about Jesus. I killed John, but who is this I'm hearing about all these things about? The anticipation has been building from the very beginning. Building from his advent, building from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Who is he? Could this be the Messiah? And now the time has come for Jesus to be clearer than ever with his disciples about who he is. Our passage begins with Luke reporting that Jesus was praying alone. And this is a big theme throughout the book of Luke. When something important is about to take place, Jesus is found praying alone. And having prayed probably about this very own situation, about his asking the disciples about his identity. He turns to them and begins to ask them, who do people say that I am? He begins with that sort of setup question. He knows who the crowds say that he is, of course, but he begins with this, that he might test his disciples. Who do the crowds say that I am? So we already saw in chapter 9 Um, the beginning of chapter 9, these reports. Some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others were saying it was Elijah or or another prophet who had been raised from the dead. (laughs) The crowds knew Jesus was a great man, like the great ones that they knew of. Maybe even a prophet who had been raised from the dead. They knew there was even something supernatural about him. But they also display an, an uncertainty about him, a confusion about who Jesus is. And really, it's similar to our situation today. There's a lot of confusion and uncertainty about who Jesus is. Who do the masses say that Jesus is? Who do your unbelieving neighbors say that Jesus is? Or your co-workers who claim to be Christians? Who who do they say that Jesus is? Certainly, many view him as a, a good man, a good teacher even, maybe even a prophet as Muslims do. He is a good example to follow, someone might say, if we want to be good, moral people. And I get the sense, really, that many even view Jesus as someone who wants to give them a good life, full of happiness, full of comfort, free from disease and pain and suffering. People all around you, recognize this when you go to work this week wherever you go this week, people all around you are confused about who Jesus is. And yet this is the most vital knowledge anyone can have. It's a question of life and death. So Jesus turns this question to his disciples. And the way he asks this question puts the emphasis on you. That's what they say about me. That's what all the crowds say about me. But you, who do you say that I am? And Luke intends his readers to be confronted with Jesus himself as he is asking this question. Who do you say that I am? You've heard his teachings. You've seen his miracles, his claims to deity and his ability to forgive sins. Who do you say that Jesus is? And here we ought to pause and say the question is not what do others say about Jesus? The question is not what do your parents, what does your father and mother say about who Jesus is? It's not what does your spouse, who, who does your spouse say that I am? And it's not who do your elders say that I am? Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am? If you answer that he is just a good teacher, a uh, uh, then you can be content to take what you like and leave what you don't like. But if you answer it more like Peter does, if you answer it by saying that he is God in human flesh, the Savior who died for sinners, the Lord of all things, then you must bow your knee to him and the whole course of your life must be reoriented around him. So how would you answer that question? This is not just a question we have to ask ourselves one time at conversion. This is a time we need to consider again and again. Are there areas of my life where I'm leaving my confession of who Jesus Christ is? That he is the Christ of God. That's how Peter answers it in verse 20. And presumably presumably he represents the other disciples too. You are the Christ of God. So this was a test for the disciples, and they passed it. With Peter's answer, they showed that they were different from the crowds who didn't know him. They knew Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He was and is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who had come to save and rescue God's people. And yet at the same time, the disciples still expect a political sort of messiah a political sort of deliverer they got the answer right but only partially right they were right that jesus was the christ but they were mistaken as to what kind of christ he was jesus sternly warns them to keep quiet about this and then he clarifies what it means that he's the christ this warning though to keep quiet it's been called the messianic secret don't tell okay i'm the christ don't tell anyone who i am don't tell anyone that i'm the christ Jesus had no interest in being crowned king yet. The people might do just that after seeing his amazing works and hearing his claims, but Jesus will not bypass the shame of the cross to get to the glory of the resurrection. He knows that the path to ultimate glory that his father has for him is paved with self-denial and suffering. He's not a political, military savior who has come to overthrow the Roman government in a blaze of glory. He is the suffering, rejected, dying and rising son of man. And this is shocking. This is shocking to the disciples. To our world too. It's it's foolishness to those who are perishing. A rescuer who would be defeated. A hero, hero who gets himself killed. This was totally uh, contrary to what everyone was expecting. But notice Jesus' words too. He doesn't use the same term that Peter uses. He chooses a different title for himself. The Son of Man. The Son of Man must go through all these things. And the Son of Man is Jesus' preferred title for, for himself throughout the gospel. It's used 84 times in the gospels. And 83 of those times it comes from the lips of Jesus. All 26 times it is used in Luke, it's Jesus who is referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's a title of authority and dignity, of kingship. If you look back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it is one like the Son of Man. Who is presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. This is the title Jesus is using for himself. And with this title, Jesus is claiming that he is so much more than some earthly rescuer of a particular ethnic people. He is the everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom which is made up of people from all nations. And shockingly, he connects this title, the Son of Man, to his suffering and death. Jesus doesn't win by killing his enemies. He is the king who triumphs by laying down his own life for his people. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And really, this is the culmination of what Jesus came to do. This is the climax of his coming and even a climactic point in the whole story of the Bible. Everything either leads up to this point or flows from this point of the cross. This is none other than what we call the gospel. That Jesus suffered and died for our sins and rose from the dead in victory over all the powers of evil. He came to rescue us from our sins and from this present evil age. As the song says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? He did bleed and die, our sovereign. The king of all creation devoted his sacred head for sinners like us. And he calls us to glory in this. In the suffering, in the death, in the resurrection of Christ. He calls us to glory in his suffering, to glory in the resurrection, uh, in the rejection and death of Jesus Christ, to glory in the cross of Christ. What do you glory in? What is it that thrills your soul as you think about your life, as you think about your interests? Is it Jesus in His suffering and death and resurrection? Are you able to say with Paul, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. We glory in the cross because it is everything to us. His death is our life. You know, it must look pretty foolish for people... Who, are, who don't know Christ, that we glory in a cross. A bloody cross. I mean, can you, can you not think about something more positive to think about? Can you not come up with something more encouraging to focus all of your hopes and all of your joy in? This is what we are to glory in. To treasure. Because it is in Jesus' cross that we have the forgiveness of sins. That we have peace With God our Father. That we have His Spirit indwelling us. And as He has risen, we have the promise of a resurrection like His. In the midst of your own suffering and trials. In the midst of your own difficulties. Glory in this. Glory in the cross of Christ. Cling to that. This is... Jesus's first prophecy of his suffering and death. And he does it two more times in Luke. And as soon as Peter answers that truly that he is the Christ, Jesus begins the next phase of his training for the disciples. He tells them plainly what must take place. And then he begins to show them what this means for their life. Their lives are bound up in the identity of Christ and his work. If they wish to come after Him, they must count the cost of being His disciples. So now we turn from that question of who is Jesus to this question, who are Jesus' disciples? So Jesus now is speaking more than just to His disciples. He extends an invitation to all to come after Him. That means to follow Him, to be His disciples. And Christ puts conditions, notice these conditions on those who want to be his disciples. Notice the if-then statements in verse 23. If anyone wishes to be Jesus' disciple, he must do three things. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Jesus. So first, the disciple of Jesus must deny himself. To deny yourself means to renounce yourself, to say no to your own uh, selfish desires, your own way of life. It means to renounce yourself as the king over your life. You're giving up control to Christ. And this removes the possibility of indifference on those who would consider the claims of Christ. When I was in Romania, um, speaking to a man about Christ and the gospel, he said that he liked to go around to different people and to just find out what they thought about God. Just to... I hope he was sincere in his search of truth, but it almost seemed as if it was kind of a hobby. It's just kind of interesting to see what everybody thinks about God, to see what their views are on religion and spirituality. He had had found it all very interesting. But I hope you notice you can't just find this command interesting. This brings you to a point of decision. It makes a demand on your life. You must deny yourself. To become a disciple of Jesus. And what makes this all the more difficult is that we live in an age of self-fulfillment. Not of self-denial. That is the complete opposite, even of what many Christians will say. We are encouraged to fulfill our dreams. People say, uh, have you heard the term YOLO? You only live once. So live this life for everything that you can. Get as much happiness in this life as you can. We swim in the water of self-fulfillment, and Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself. But second, a disciple of Jesus must take up his cross daily. And I'm sure this must have been puzzling for Jesus' disciples. Not only is Jesus going to suffer and die, but he calls his disciples to take up their own cross. Carrying your cross, of course, was something that you did on the way to die on it. To be crucified upon it, to be hung on as a means of public execution. This refers not simply to the trials that we face, which are common to life. Taking up your cross refers to the difficulties you face specifically because you are living for Christ. Probably heard the term the via dolorosa, it's Latin for the way of grief or suffering. It's a street uh, within the old city of Jerusalem held to be the path that Jesus walked, carrying his cross each step of the way on the way to the crucifixion. Of course, we don't know his exact route to the cross, but it gives us a vivid picture of what Jesus is calling his disciples to. As Jesus had the cross placed upon his back and carried it to his own death, This is what he is calling us to. Christian discipleship, as defined by Jesus, is taking the Via Dolorosa every day. Notice the progression of intensity there too. Not only must you deny yourself, renounce yourself, you must die to yourself every day. And third, a disciple of Jesus must follow him. This must have been very real to the people who are around him. Surely he meant at least in one way, that those around him should literally follow him. And in verse 51 of chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. That means he is determined now that it is time that I begin my course to my suffering and death. So his disciples must follow him there. They must follow him to eat the bread which was his body and drink the cup which was his blood poured out For the forgiveness of sins. They must follow him to the Mount of Olives. Where he wept with such intensity. That his sweat became like blood. They must follow him to his betrayal. And his trial. To where he was beaten and mocked. They must follow him down the Via Dolorosa. And to the cross where he was crucified. And they must follow him to the tomb. Where they laid his lifeless body. And Jesus calls us to this. Jesus calls you And me to follow him, to follow him in his sufferings, to follow him in his rejection, to follow him in his death, so that we might also follow him in his resurrection. Like Jesus, we cannot bypass the way of the cross on the way to glory. Before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a death. But of course, the problem is we don't like that too much. We don't like suffering. Much of what we do every day is to avoid suffering. Why would we want to pursue suffering with Christ? And Martin Luther says when we do that, when we strive to avoid suffering with Christ, what we're actually doing is forgetting the cross. He says, It is astounding that the cross of Christ has so fallen into forgetfulness for is it not forgetfulness of the cross when no one wishes to suffer, but rather to enjoy himself and evade the cross? You must personally experience suffering with Christ. And this temptation to self-preservation, to avoid suffering, comes both from within us and from without us, from inside of us because we love comfort and ease and convenient. We love being able to open up our phone and get our mail and text. And we love the conveniences of this day. We love to avoid suffering, inconvenience at any cost. And if we're not careful, this will cause us to forget the cross of Christ. If you're constantly trying to save your life, you will lose it for good. We're not called to convenience, but to cross-bearing. We are also tempted, not only from the inside, but from the outside, by Satan himself. Satan will be happy if you are comfortable, so long as you are led away from Christ and his cross. He will be pleased for you to have comfort, so long as you don't share in the sufferings of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says, The great hallmark of Satan's leading is to draw us away from that union and fellowship with Christ and his cross. Just as he endeavored to draw the Lord Christ away from the cross, first in the wilderness temptations and later through Simon Peter, so he wants to take our affections as far away as possible from loving and trusting our suffering and crucified master. He knows that the principle of the cross is the seedbed of spiritual usefulness. He will pay any price to prevent us from practical experience of that suffering. In light of Satan's aim, then, our aim must be to center our affections and our faith on the suffering and crucified Savior. We have to be willing to pay any price to keep our attention there and to keep Satan from drawing us away from sharing in Christ and his cross. We must meditate on Christ and His cross, considering His suffering, His rejection, His brutal death for our sins, and we must consider what this means for us. And at the last part of our passage, we see why we have to consider this for ourselves. It's because there is either a great loss or a great gain coming in the end. That's the urgency in Jesus' call to discipleship. These statements in verses 24 to 26 show why we must count the cost in becoming disciples of Jesus. There is great loss for anyone who will try to preserve their own life. It will profit a man absolutely nothing if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul. Whoever is ashamed of the Son of Man and His words will suffer great loss when he returns in his glory for he will be ashamed of such a person i don't know if there's a a worse idea than that jesus coming and being ashamed let us test ourselves here ask yourself is my approach to life seeing how i can be most comfortable have i attempted to avoid the way of the cross in favor of the way of ease would i rather preserve my own self than to give up my life for the sake of christ no doubt there are many who call themselves christians who are functionally ashamed of christ and his cross they wouldn't say that of course none of us would but their lives revolve around themselves and the things of this world rather than the suffering crucified Christ. And then when any pressure is exerted on them to make a profession of Christ, they shrink back in fear, rather than to boldly acknowledge him. Don't miss the urgency of this call to discipleship. You must count the cost. Are you willing to endure suffering for his sake? To stand in the face of unpopular sentiment to confess Christ at the risk of use- losing your reputation, your own self, your very life. Are you willing to lose your popularity or reputation at school for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to lose your comfortable relationship with your neighbors for the sake of Christ? must count the cost of being Christ's disciple and according to the example of Paul it means you count everything as loss everything as rubbish compared to the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ I have a friend who seems to be seriously considering moving his family to India his two little children and they went over there uh, to India earlier this year to work with an orphanage and to minister among orphans to serve them. And they, their hearts just filled with joy at being able to serve in that way. And, and I can't imagine saying goodbye to everything that I've always known. And I really respect and am thankful for men and women who are willing to leave everything behind. I have friends in Turkey, You you probably know some some people too who are all around the globe who have given their lives for the sake of Christ. seems they have given up so much. But of course, we, we shouldn't think that that is the only way to deny ourselves and take up our crosses by... We, we might tend to think that there are certain levels of discipleship. There are those who are really serious who go on the mission field. Then there are those who are a little bit more serious who are pastors. And then everybody else is kind of on a lower playing field. That's not, this is the call of all of Jesus' disciples. To deny themselves, to pick up their crosses and follow Jesus. So we must consider what will this look like for me in particular to deny myself and take up my cross? What will this look like as a stay-at-home mother to, de- to deny myself? I know y'all do that a lot. But what would it mean to suffer for Christ's sake in my situation, in the business world? What would that mean for me? We need to, to carry this application with us through the week and consider what would this mean for me practically? But with all this loss, we shouldn't miss what there is to gain. We shouldn't focus exclusively on what there is to lose, but we should see what there is to gain. After all, to motivate people to lose something, you often have to show them what they're going to gain. When Rachel and I decided to adopt, we knew it would mean having to give up some things. For one, you have to give up control because adoption is such... The emotional roller coaster ride that it is amazing. It is crazy. We had to give up that control. But then, when the Lord finally blessed us with children, we knew we would lose even more. We would lose convenience. We would lose being able to go out with friends at the drop of a hat. We would lose peace and quiet. And maybe most importantly of all, we would lose a lot of sleep. We knew what we were getting into, that we would lose a lot. But when we considered what it was that we had gained, we forgot about anything that we had lost. We knew it was worth it. It was worth the wait. It was worth the struggle. It was worth everything. What we had lost paled into comparison to what we had in our children, in our family. And how much greater the reward of those who deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow Jesus? How much greater will that reward be? Those who lose their life for the sake of Christ will actually gain that which is truly life. Those who give up the whole world and everything in it so much, in that they will find they have gained a treasure far, far, far greater than anything this world could offer. Christ, eternal life with perfect communion with your Savior. Those who gladly acknowledge Christ, not shrinking back in fear, when Christ comes in all His glory, to them He will give His affirmation and acknowledgement before the Father. If there's nothing more terrifying than Jesus coming in all His glory and being ashamed of you, There will be nothing more rewarding than Jesus coming and affirming you before the Heavenly Father. Remember that in suffering for the sake of Christ, there is great blessing. Just as Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Leap for joy when you suffer for Christ. This is the reward. That we have before us. Christ himself. Jesus is the suffering, rejected, dying and rising son of man. And this is the template for our identity in Christ. But that's not all it is. Jesus' work for us actually also enables us and empowers us to do the very thing he commands We will not become better better followers of Christ simply by more rigorous self-denial and asceticism. We will not become better followers of Christ by our own white-knuckled self-denial. We will only become better followers of Christ as we first meditate on His own sufferings for our sake. That He was the one who turned away the wrath of God. That He was the one who suffered in our place. We will only be able to endure our own sufferings with faith in God when we understand that He did this for us. What brings us close to God is not our work for Him or our devotion to Him or our self-denial for Him. It is Christ and His work. Knowing that the one who denied himself to the very death and rose again, has gone before us, is with us by his Spirit, is reigning from heaven above with the Father, and is coming back soon to establish his kingdom once and for all. Therefore, as Jeremy read earlier, let us run with endurance this race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray together. I pray, Father, that you would come in conviction by your Spirit, you would show us areas of our lives where we have not, not given up, not lost ourselves to you. I pray that you would come in conviction at areas we have avoided suffering for the sake of Christ and chosen instead the way of least resistance. But also pray that with the heaviness of your call to discipleship, you would show us how great your grace is. That even a Jesus denier like Peter would be restored by your mercy. Remind us of The fullness of your mercy towards sinners like us. So that we too, like Christ our Savior, would for the joy set before us endure the way of suffering, the way of the cross. So that others might see that you are the all-surpassing treasure of the universe.